You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. I got an email that demonstrates the power of the Word of God that I want to share with you. We've been going through the Psalms, and a few weeks ago we preached on uh, Psalm 59, and someone from our congregation, thank you, Tanya Ashworth, sent this to me. She said, good morning, Pastor Jim. Earlier this summer, I came home from church to my nephew, Nathan, and he was telling me how stressful his job is. He works in a plant with many angry, frustrated, loud people who find democracy and our Judeo-Christian heritage something to scorn. They're loud in expressing their opinions. By the way, I should say I have her and her nephew's permission to share this. Please don't think any email you send could show up in a sermon someday. I should clarify that. Excuse me. I I was very moved by this. She says, my nephew was frustrated and anxious by the constant barrage of attacks on the foundation of our existence. As a way of helping to console him, I shared with him the sermon and the scripture that had just been delivered at Rockland. I told him about King David and the frustration and anxiety that he too dealt with, and I related to my nephew many of the things from the scripture and from the sermon. My nephew was so moved and asked where the scripture came from that you were using. I couldn't exactly remember, but I thought it was Psalm 59. It was Psalm 59. So my nephew got out his Bible and memorized that chapter. Now when he's working in the plant and the naysayers start in on their usual rant, my nephew responds by saying, Psalm 59. (laughs) He has said this so frequently that the fellow workers are starting to take notice. Some of the naysayers have made the effort to look up the verse to see what it says. There's also, God-loving, uh, there's also other God-loving co-workers that have now uh, taken up the use of blaring out Psalm 59 in retaliation to replace the use of swear words. She says, one of my nephew's Christian co-workers who works there part-time for extra money has a full-time business with his wife making t-shirts that they wholesale to retailers. The wife was so, was so elated when hearing the story of the use of Psalm 59, so they decided to make t-shirts with a loud Psalm 59 yelling out on the front and some lines from the chapter printed on the back. They believe that many fellow frustrated, God-loving people can now have a way of responding back to the ugly remarks. And she says, so in the future, when you hear people all across the country Shouting out Psalm 59, you can all know it came from that passage and started at Rockland. (laughs) Well, I I know what she means. I will say, we we didn't invent Psalm 59 here at Rockland. Amazingly enough, that was about 3,000 years on the exact opposite side of the world from the events here that took place. Which is remarkable to me just to see the power of the word of God that this young man would take it, that David wrote in a completely different setting thousands of years ago, completely different place, completely different language, and it is so relevant and so applicable to the context that he's in today. Today, in Psalm 62, I want to show you a very similar thing, and when I tell you what it means, there's something in you that may just go, was that written 3,000 years ago, or was that written like yesterday? Because it feels so applicable and so relevant for the times that we are going through. And you've heard, you heard it read, and the, the, the basic idea of it is that God is a refuge for our souls. God alone, he is the only worthy refuge for our souls. He alone is the thing that can offer that stability for our soul. And the psalmist talks about two false refuges that apparently were a big deal in his day and they're a big deal in our day as well, which which are um, uh, people, relationships, and then money, possessions, and stuff. Those are false 
refuges. I'm, I'm, I'm in this relationship. I have this person in my life. Therefore, I'm fine at the deepest part of me. I have this stuff or this money, this security in my life. Therefore, I'm fine at the deepest part of me. And he is going to expose that those are bad refuges for our soul. So I want to just think this morning, if I were to ask this question, what is my refuge? What is my refuge? How, how would you answer that? And you might be able to think of it like this. Um, not, not exactly, but some. If everything in the world were to fall apart, and then you just sort of, you started to sort of pick yourself back up and start to work your way through it, and you started to go, well, at least I have blank. What's in that blank? At least I have blank. So like in my context, it might be at least, well, at least I have my wife, at least I have my kids, at least I have my extended family. If you're, you know, high school or something, you might say, at least I'm in this dating relationship. I've got my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. I've got my friends. I've got my community. I've got, I've got my church. Like at least at the end of the day, I have this relationship or these relationships. That is what you're using as a refuge for your soul. Or it could be at the end of the day, if everything falls apart, at least I've got my, my retirement to fall back on. At least I've got, you know, I've got my job, or at least I've got good references and good experience in case I lose that job. At least I've got my house, or at least I've got whatever security money buys for us. If we put that in the blank, then what we're doing is we're making our money our refuge. At least I have blank. What he's going to say is, at least I have God. Amen. That's what he's coming back to. Now, I want to show you this psalm. It's confusing for a couple reasons. Some of the Hebrew is a little tricky. Um, and then the, to add to that, the audience he's addressing kind of bobs back and forth throughout. And then he also will talk, he'll, he'll give something that's a real refuge, God, and then he'll talk about a false refuge. And he just kind of ping-pongs back and forth. And as they were reading it, I don't think it would be that big a deal. It's a little tricky for us. So I'll go through, and as we're going through, I'll try to guide you on what seems to be happening there. Like he starts out... Um, he starts out with a real refuge, and here's what he says. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And notice, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. More often than not in the Christian life, the problem is not do we trust God. The problem is do we trust God alone? Or do we trust God plus well, I trust God and I trust this relationship. I trust God and I trust this stuff that he's given me. I trust my bank account. I trust my retirement. I trust, yeah, 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 I trust God, but I trust all these other things maybe just as much. And what David is saying is I trust in God alone. He is the only worthy, ultimate, final refuge for my soul. Amen. And then he gives a fake refuge. And the way this one here is he's giving, he's giving a taunt to, um, to, to kind of hypothetical enemies, okay? He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Today we might say, don't, don't kick someone while they're down. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying just, just winning in your victory is not enough. You want to bring humiliation upon this person. And then, um, and then he talks to the community of God's people about this group of people. And three reasons that mankind is not trustworthy. He says, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. 
Three reasons we can't fully trust in other people is we have this, we have this bent within us to like watching somebody who we think is ahead of us on the food chain that has more money, more fame, uh, more beauty, more whatever it is, to watch them fall. That's what he's talking about here. Um, to sort of kick a man while he's down, as he said just a minute ago, and thrust people down from their high position. Um, It is entertaining today. I mean, it makes the news when somebody who's famous and beautiful and rich, when they mess up, it is news. If they do something fantastic, it's probably quick news. They might have their people call Netflix and get a documentary out of it. But if they fall, if they do something bad, that is ongoing news and we eat that up. I think there's something in us that goes, man, if they fall, that means they now have to go behind me and I kind of bump up in line a little bit. It's not how we're supposed to be. But this is not new to us that we like sort of taking a shot at the big guy. Like Marx didn't really invent Marxism. The idea of looking up at, other, at, the, peop, at the haves and being a have-not and being, feeling free to just kind of take shots at them. He didn't really invent it. He looked at what was happening and he coined some terms and he put a system around it largely. But this idea of the have-nots taking shots at the haves has been going on. It's one of the earliest sins. This, is, this permeates our culture. And if you think about it like that, there's something like messed up in us. That we like to look, and if somebody falls, somebody fails, there can be something in us that instead of being moved to compassion, can go, ah, boy, that really stinks, and I'm really mad they did that. But we make them the enemy instead of making the enemy the enemy. That we, good, now I have some kind of entertainment value off of their falling, um, as opposed to me hoping, you know, good for my fellow man. They plan to thrust him down from his high position. Then it says they love lying. It says they take pleasure in falsehood. Now, it's interesting. I would think like, you know, people lie, but he says they take pleasure in it. They love lying. And I thought, I don't know if people today love lying. And then I thought, well, of course we do. Of course we do. Listen, like on social media, if you're not on social media, I'm not on social media anymore. I'm hardly on social media, I should say, anymore, because so much of what it is, especially around an election season, is somebody has a bias about something and somebody can say anything, no matter how true or false it is, but it fits a narrative someone already has and so it's share, 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 share and all of a sudden it becomes truth. And people love being able to share. It doesn't matter if it's true or false. We just like being able to share and getting people to share and then liking and clicking and all those kinds of things. In conversations, the same thing, um, that we'll see uh, like a hidden camera or a dash cam and we'll see like five or 10 seconds of it. And boy, in conversations, we will pretend like we know exactly what happened and exactly who's guilty and exactly what is right and exactly what is wrong. And the reality is, we don't know. We saw five seconds of some camera and that's about it. But boy, we love our opinion in America today, don't we? We love being able to just share, and we'll share it with such confidence, yet it really, if you dig down, you might go, I guess I don't really know all the facts of what actually just happened. Like, yes, we love lying. Um, there is, uh, do you, don't say it out loud, but can you think of any perhaps politicians who lie, or as a group lie, and there doesn't seem to be any accountability for it? There's a lot of that. And I look and go, well, there's no accountability. And I kind of go, I think we like being lied to. I kind of like being told everything's okay, even if things aren't that great. 
Like there is something in us that goes, that's easier instead of hearing all the, tr- all the unvarnished truth about what's really going on to hear, you know, we're gonna be fine, even if they're going, I don't know how we're gonna be fine, but we're gonna be fine. If you just elect me, we'll be just fine. Okay, well, that sounds good. Like we, we like that and we like, in the sense, being lied to. In fact, I'll tell you, like what we're doing at Fireside with our young people, listen, the fight today is over identity. That is the fight of who am I? And the world will lie to them and say things like this. Parents need to hear this. Young people need to hear this. Um, Everybody needs to hear this, really. Is the world will lie to them and say your value is in how beautiful you are, how successful you are, how good of grades that you get, if you're in a relationship, a dating relationship or not, if you get into a college, how esteemed is that college, um, how good are you on your sports team, that is your identity and that's who you are. And tonight, Aaron is going to say for the next six weeks, he's basically going to say, no, it's not, over and over and over. That is a lie that the world is giving, and young people especially, it is a compelling lie that is easy to believe. And let's not just pretend that that's our teenagers, because we can fall into the same trap, can't we? Who I am is how many people show up on a Sunday morning. Who I am is, you know, how much money do I make or how, how good do I look or how, when people ask me what I do, is it, is it kind of embarrassing or is it like, oh, and I kind of want to brag and that's my identity and that's who I am. We can fall into the exact same traps, can't we? We have this bent within us to serve our own self-interest. We delight in the fall of others because we think we get to move up the ladder and take their place a little bit, but we live in a world that will lie blatantly with their words and also with their demeanor. It says they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They'll say things that they are not at all thinking. And I would just say today, Christians, let's be sure to say, not us. We are not in that group. I don't want to be the person that delights and relishes in somebody else's fall and the pain that it hurts them. And that person is an image bearer of God. I, don't, I want to be different from the lying, unbelieving world, and we should be. So this would be, at least I have, and then we put people in that blank. At least I have my wife, my husband, my kids, my friend, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my community. Um, this, this is a, a terrible burden to put on another person. Will you be the ultimate refuge for my soul? They'll fail us. You'll fail the other people if they put that on you. And David is going to say, but there is a true refuge. There's a better refuge. And he, he's going to talk now about a real refuge. And he's actually addressing his own soul. You'll see that. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock my refuge is God. And he's going to go on with a real refuge, but he's now addressing the people. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, here's what he says. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And then he says, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. He just used a, a Hebrew, it's, a, it's called a merism, where he said the people of low estate, the people of high estate. And so what he means is everybody. He's trying to say the highest and the lowest, and then everybody in between is really what he's saying. And he says everybody, he says they're a breath, and in the balances, like picture a scale, it says they go up. 
which means they're lighter than whatever he's talking about. He's just said God is our refuge, and he's saying everybody else in the world as a source of a refuge and stronghold for our soul is light and insignificant compared to what God can do for us. That's what he's saying, and what's a pretty complex uh, passage. Then he gives a fake refuge here, and this is where he gets into money. And he gives a couple bad ways to get money. He says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. So he starts out with negative ways of acquiring money, extortion and robbery, but then he actually gives a positive. He says, if riches increase, or he says, if you, um, it would be if you, if you are fruitful in your wealth, which fruitfulness is a positive thing. And so he's trying to say, you can have plenty of money and it can be a good, wonderful thing. There's good gospel ways that you can have a ton of money or you can have no money. The amount of money is not an indicator of sin or not sin. But here's what he does say. He says, if your riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's saying money is a terrible refuge for your soul. There's, there's sort of two kinds of people here that use money as a refuge. One are money spenders and one are money savers. Don't be doing this to the person next to you if you're here with somebody. All right, money spenders or money savers. And they're both really looking for a refuge. The idea of money spenders is if I can just, if I can look to my money to get me enough stuff that will give me enough stuff and enough experiences to make my life somehow happy, what we're really doing is we're saying I need a refuge for my soul and all this stuff is going to provide that for me. Those are money spenders. Money savers, on the other hand, and by the way, spending money and saving money obviously can be good. I'm talking about extremes. The money savers can be the ones that go, I've, just, I've got to just put every single thing that I have away, and if I get enough away, then I don't have to worry about anything. That can be the danger of those who are money savers that would look for, if I get enough, then all of a sudden I have enough security in my life. And the reality is money does not provide that. In fact, it can be a trap if we're not wise and if we're not careful. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, we met with a couple that uh, was uh, premarital counseling and she said, when we have kids, um, I would like to leave my job, I'd like to stay at home full time. And he was very supportive of that and so we said, great, and they were, they were thinking they were several years out. Um, and we said, so here's what I would do. Um, that means at some point, you're going to cut an income and add a mouth to feed which I still don't know how the math all works out on that, by the way. But I said, that's what's coming, and they kind of went, oh. And so this was our advice. We said, why don't you live right now? They had a little bit of debt, and we said, why don't you live right now, just live off his salary so you get into this lifestyle, and just all of yours, just save it, put it away, pay off all your debt. So now, all of a sudden, when that kid gets here, you don't have to go, well, we had this kind of a lifestyle and honestly, we bought this much of a house and I need this income, so now I'm trapped. And I can't make the decision to stay home. I have to go back and I have to keep earning income. So we're just trying to say, just, just set it up in such a way that you're not gonna be trapped. Or this is true, one of my favorite conversations, it's gonna sound really odd, I love talking especially to men in their careers that feel trapped. Because here, here's what happened, this, and this was a lot of the peers, especially where I grew up, or where, where um, yeah, I guess where I grew up, I don't know, 20s and 30s, um, in Texas, where so many men especially would get married, start a job, have kids, in their late 20s, early 30s, late 30s, start to realize, like, I, I hate this career. <laughs> 
Why did I think that when I was, you know, 21, I knew what I wanted to do until I was 70 years old or something? And so there's so many men especially that will get in a career and all of a sudden now you got, you got mouths to feed, you got kids, you've got this kind of life and all that you go, I got cars and college and like all these different things. And so literally I've talked to these men, they'd be 35 and they would go, I hate what I do, but reality now says I have to just keep this path going for the next 30 or 40 years. And I love to just go, stop it. Why? Because they're trapped. Because they've started with this certain life, and probably there's a measure of responsibility, and I don't want to minimize that, but they've got this kind of a life, and then to say, I'm going to do something different now is like, I may lose all my contacts in the industry I've built up. It might mean, um, you know, I'm taking a pay cut all of a sudden, which you're not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to be accumulating wealth. I'm supposed to be getting raises. And all of a sudden, what can happen is if there's a certain life, and that is the refuge, that's the expectation now, all of a sudden, you can just feel trapped. There is great, one of my things that brings me the most joy is when I talk to somebody who says, I changed courses, I changed career mid-courses because it wasn't for me, and they get to live out the last 20, whatever it is, years in something that actually brings them joy, that they're called to do, and they figure out the money stuff later, but they're not trapped by that. Money fails, mankind fails, and here's the true refuge. The first two things failed, so David again reminds us God is the refuge. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, which isn't how it works if you think about it. God spoke once and David heard it twice. There's a contrast to me and my children where I go, I said it a hundred times, feel like you didn't hear it at all. This is God said it once and David hears it two times. And I think the best way to understand this is this, there's this soul uh, stabilizing effect that the word of God has had in David's life. I think that's what it's saying. He says that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. What a, what a powerful place to live from as a Christian, to know that you, your refuge is God, the all-consuming power in the universe, and also, he says, steadfast love. And if we say, that is my refuge, then all of a sudden it puts everything else in its place. Let the world, if it, if it burns down around me, if everybody abandons me, if my bank account runs dry, or David might say, if I have to move from the palace out into the wilderness, God is my refuge and he cannot be taken from me. Amen. Two truths, just very briefly, I want to give you. First of all, I hope you can always remember that God is the only perfect, loving, strong refuge for your soul. Amen. And the second thing is this. Oftentimes what happens, and I want to say this very, very sensitively because I don't know where everybody's heart is right now. Sometimes when we have these false refuges in our life, maybe it's a relationship or if it's some money or stuff, um, I, I won't get into does God take that from us or in his sovereignty, it's our broken, fallen world. Sometimes those things are taken from us and we don't have them anymore. People can feel lost. I want to encourage you to not just try and build up the same false refuge again. Meaning like this. Um, this is, say, a high school kid, that a uh, high school guy that's dating some girl, and then she breaks up with him, and his heart's just ripped out, and he realizes, oh, I don't know what to do without her, and what we call it being on the rebound. And go, oh, you're a girl, and go over and like, just start dating somebody else real quick. 
That's going, that's, that's I feel the gap and I'm gonna go right back to a false refuge. Or that is, um, that is the person who has built up their entire, all their retirement savings as their comfort and their hope and their refuge and then all of a sudden it's gone. I'm not saying don't build it back up, but you could build it back up with more intention to say my hope is obviously not here. My hope is ultimately in God and God alone. If you feel like there's something that is precious to you that is taken, go to the Lord and find out that he is the thing that is most precious above anything else. My wife's leading a Bible study for moms uh, at our house, and they are, so in the Bible study, um, the woman who wrote it is, tells a story about a women's Bible study she was in. Sorry, there's a lot of layers here. So this is in the book that they're studying about a Bible study that the author is in. And she says this. She says, I just can't open my Bible. She's at this Bible study. They were only asking for prayer requests, but I was surrounded by people who loved me and it felt safe enough to just be honest. It had been four months since we buried our stillborn daughter and just as many since my aching arms had reached for my Bible. My very wounded heart, which lived and breathed and clung to the book like never before throughout the uncertainty of my pregnancy, felt betrayed, weak, and hopeless. There I sat in in Tara's living room with a dozen other women circled up for the first Bible study I'd attended since our Evie Grace was born. I really only came because I needed to get out of the house. My soul was weary, and I said, I just can't open my Bible. No one gasped at my words. No one troubleshot. Instead of judgment, even instead of you've just got to do it, my very blonde and very quiet friend, Allison, opened the worn pages of the Bible in her lap and simply said, that's okay, let me read it to you instead. Lifting her, <clears throat> lifting her bookmark from its place, she began to read and she read from Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. As she read read on through the end of the chapter, these friends of mine gathered closer. When Allison finished, Carrie began to read from her Bible, then Holly, then Danielle. Like I was a person starving too weak to lift food to my own mouth, they spoon-fed scripture while I sat and wept and listened to the word that never stopped being alive or true, even when it remained unread and unopened. Friends, we have a refuge in God and God alone, that if everything else falls apart, he is good, he is loving, he is powerful, and he is there.